0: You this morning, let's open to the book of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter three. The song we just sang was written by a man named Joseph Scriven, who is an Irishman, who in 1844 had just completed college when he went home to marry his fiance. And when he traveled home, he went to find her the day before the wedding and found out that she had drowned in a nearby creek. He was obviously upset. He later moved to Canada as he was working through the grief and the sadness. He fell in love with another girl, planned to marry her, but also felt the same heartbreak when she tragically died of an illness as well. So after losing the love of his wife twice, being broken, being discouraged, he writes this poem to his mother back in Ireland describing the deep friendship that he had cultivated with Jesus in hard time. He entitled it Pray Without Ceasing. Eventually, it became What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And instead of blaming God for his circumstances, he turned to God in prayer, recognizing that he had a friend in Jesus Christ. When we struggle with trials and when we struggle with suffering, sometimes we forget to worship. Sometimes we don't pray, but we bottle everything in. We tell everyone else about our problems, but God, and we neglect how in our suffering we can worship God. This is something that we want to consider this morning. This is what we see Habakkuk do in Habakkuk chapter 3. And this is something that Christians can experience that is very unique to the world. You see, the world doesn't understand how we can have joy and peace in the middle of trial and in the middle of suffering. As we think about worship this morning, sometimes in worship we can try to give the appearance that everything is okay. We sing songs that are happy and uplifting and we should sing those songs. Those are good songs to sing sometimes when we're singing, sometimes when we're worshiping, we have things going on in life that are heavy, that are burdensome, that are difficult to work through. But as a song we just sang read, we don't have to have those burdens. We don't have to be weak and heavy laden, but we can take it to the Lord in prayer. We've talked in the last few weeks about hard questions for God, real challenges and circumstances that we face as Christians. There's sometimes where we just see evil in the world, we see suffering in the world, and we think, how could God allow this to happen? There's sometimes when we read God's word and we say, I don't understand what God is doing in this situation, I don't trust God's plan, and we've said it's not wrong to voice those things to God. It's not wrong to pray to God and say, I don't understand what you're doing, I'm struggling with this situation in my life. But as we want to see this morning, we don't just want to despair. We don't just want to focus on the questions we have. We've talked about lament. Lament is wailing. It's presenting our affliction and our emotions to God and asking him to intercede. But every psalm of lament that we see in Scripture doesn't just focus on the complaints, but it focuses on trust in the Lord. In the beginning of Habakkuk, he says things like, how long will I cry for help and you will not hear? How long will I see violence and you will not save? Are you not from everlasting? You're a pure eyes to see evil, but yet Habakkuk saw all this evil going on in his life and in his world, and he didn't know how God could stand there and watch it all. But one of the beautiful things about Habakkuk is it starts with questions, but it ends with praise. Habakkuk chapter three is a unique chapter. It's really a psalm. It's a psalm in the back of the book of Habakkuk. You wouldn't be surprised to find this in the book of Psalms somewhere. It says in the inscription in verse one, a prayer of Habakkuk according to the Shigunoth, which like Tim said, is a musical term, to utter praise to God, or some even think it could be a term of lamentation. So he turns from questions and frustration to praise. And that's what we want to focus on this morning. How can we, in the midst of suffering, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of brokenness, turn to God and worship? How do you worship God when you just don't feel like it, when you just don't think you can go on. I lead worship here as a church so if you don't like the songs that we sing you can either learn an instrument or you can sing and come up here as well and then I'll let you help me pick the songs that we sing every week but there have been Sundays when I just don't feel like singing when I just don't feel like leading worship and maybe I do it and put on a brave face but there's sometimes when we worship Where we just don't have the same energy or emotion that we do on other Sundays. So what do we do during hard days? What do we sing when we're suffering and when we're sad? And what we want to see this morning is that when faced with suffering, praise God, your Redeemer. It's not wrong to go to God with questions and concerns. It's not wrong to voice our frustration to him. But in suffering, we have a special opportunity to praise God for what he's done in our life. And so we want to see that this morning in this last chapter of Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3 verses 1 through 19 is all a psalm. It's actually a song. And we'll look at how that breaks down here in a few moments. We'll just look at the first 16 verses The last three verses, I think, are part of this psalm, but I want to save them for next week because I think they deserve to have their own sermon for us to especially focus on those three verses. So especially during times of suffering, we need to praise God. But how do we do that? How do we worship God during suffering? We want to look at three ways. First of all, we want to pray, asking God to work. We'll see that in the first two verses. Pray, asking God to work. So look with me at the inscription we just read, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to the Shigenoth. So it starts out similar to chapter 1. If you go back to chapter 1, it says the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Another way your version could translate that is the burden Habakkuk saw. When you think of burden, it's a heavy weight, a bearing down message. It's something you don't want to hear, you don't want to pay attention to. But notice the transition through the book of Habakkuk. Habakkuk has these questions, he has these concerns, so it's a burden, and it weighs down on him, and it presses him. God speaks to Habakkuk, he tells him two things. The wicked are going to keep being wicked. They're not going to change, but eventually God will destroy them. But the righteous will live by faith. So Habakkuk, hearing that message from God, turns, and now he offers up this prayer. He turns from his suffering and his questions to prayer and praise. We mentioned earlier the shiganoth. We don't exactly know what it means, but we think it's some kind of musical term that offers up Praise to God. We see it in other Psalms as well. Look at verse two. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years revive it. In the midst of the years make it known. In wrath remember mercy. Now think about what you know about songs. We sang four of them. We're going to sing one more after we end the sermon. Songs usually have verses, right? Verse 1, verse 2, verse 3. And then some songs have a chorus that you sing after every verse. And some have a bridge as well. This song is no different. Verse 2 is the chorus. Verse 2 is set out at the chorus, and you would sing it after each one of the stanzas. Verses 3 through 8 make up one stanza. Showing God, praising him for his work, I believe especially his presence. Verses 9 through 12 make up a second stanza. Verses 13 through 15 make up a third stanza. And then verses 16 really through 19 would be the bridge. So in Habakkuk chapter 3, you have a song. And after each verse, they would go back to verse 2. And they would recite the chorus, O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of your years, revive it. In the midst of your years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So it has verses and it has a chorus. Now look with me at what this chorus says. We see, first of all, he says, I've heard your report. I've heard your word. When did God speak to Habakkuk? Go back to chapter two for just a moment. Habakkuk in verse one says, I've said what I need to say. I've voiced my frustration. I really think all of chapter one is Habakkuk voicing his complaint to God. And he says, now I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait for God to answer. I'm going to wait for God to tell me what his message is. And so then in verse two, God says, write the vision, make it plain plain on the tablets. And we talked about if someone was running, make it so that they could read it while they were running. Now, if it were me, I'd be jogging or probably just speed walking, but you'd still want to be able to see it while you were traveling. And we see that he says again, the righteous will live by faith. And in verses six through 20, the wicked will be destroyed. So Habakkuk says, I've heard your word. I see how you're working through the world. I know what's going to happen. And he says, "O Lord, do I fear? Now, there's two ways you can take that fear. You can say he's afraid, like physically shaking, afraid. And that would make sense, right? You read verse 16. He says, I'm shaking. I'm trembling. I hear this and my body trembles. My bones are rotten. So Habakkuk is afraid. But I don't think it's that type of fear. I think it's an awe or a reverence for God. And what he's doing. The fear of the Lord, as Solomon says, is the beginning of wisdom. So he says, God, I've heard your word. I hear what you have to say. And I'm going to fear you. I'm going to trust you. And then he has three requests. When you pray, you have different prayer requests. But his are unique. He says, in the midst of your years, revive it. What does it mean to revive something? Well, it means something's dead, Right. You're trying to revive something. You're trying to bring it back to life. We think of revivals or revival services. What are you doing in those? You're trying to reawaken something, trying to see people save. You're trying to see a movement happen. And so when we hear this, in the mystery of your years, revive it, we think about the message of God being revived again in the nation. Now, if you know the history of Israel, they were under the reign of a bad king, Jehoiakim. But his father was King Josiah, who was a good king in the eyes of God. He found the book of Deuteronomy, found the law, and had them relearn it and reinstituted the worship of God in the nation. So Habakkuk can remember back to when things were good, and he's saying, Lord, revive your message. Help us to return to the spiritual state that we were once in. As believers. Secondly, he says, In the midst of years, make it known. So, still talking about God's word and God's work, he says, Make your word known. I pray that others would see this throughout the years after this is over, that others would see what is happening, that they would know what you've done and see your character. And then lastly, he says, In wrath, remember mercy. Now, is God going to show mercy on the nation of Judah? No. They were chosen for destruction. They had sinned against God. Babylon was going to come. But yet God would preserve a remnant. God would keep a people for himself to go through that captivity and eventually become the nation of Israel. One of the interesting things about the Jews is that you just can't get rid of them. You just can't. You never see them go away, do you? Throughout captivity, throughout all the different wars, attacks, I mean, World War II, concentration camps, there has always been a Jewish people. Why do you think that is? Because God chose them as his people, and he's not through with Israel yet. And so Habakkuk says, in wrath, remember mercy. That's one of the great things about our God, is that while he shows wrath, he can still be merciful. So this is the chorus. This would be repeated throughout the song we see that Habakkuk is praying to God through these requests. So as we think about how we respond to God in suffering, we should pray. We can talk about how we're working through suffering and how we're challenged with what God is doing, but sometimes we simply forget to pray. You can talk about a problem that you have, and I'm the type of person that, if something's going on, I ask several people for their advice. But oftentimes, I don't pray and ask the Lord for wisdom. Habakkuk here offers up this prayer to God. He has three requests that he asks God to fulfill. And in the same way, we can offer up prayer to God even during suffering. One of my favorite examples of this is in Psalm 13.1. Where the psalmist says, how long will you forget me forever? And you think, he's in a really dark place. But then by the end of the psalm, he says, I have trusted in your steadfast love. So as we pray to God, as we offer our prayer to him, we can both be honest about our situation. God already knows what's going on. We don't have to paint things in a rosy picture. We can also trust in what He is going to do. So we see this prayer of Habakkuk in verse one or in verses one and two. Then as we get to verses three through 15, we want to secondly sing. sing, remembering the character of God. We're going to see the three verses here in this larger section of Habakkuk. We're going to see how we can sing to the Lord and worship him. We see the first verse, in verses 3 through 8, which I think emphasize the glorious presence of God. So after verse 2, look at what verse 3 says. God came from Taman, and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Now, there's a lot made of what Selah means in the Psalms. Some people think it's a musical note. Some people think it's a pause, and I would lean towards that idea that it's some kind of pause where you reflect on what has just been said. But you'll notice you see Selah three times in this psalm. You see it in verse 3. You see it again in verse 9. You see it again in verse 13. And sometimes Selah marks the end of a section, but here I think it's marking the beginning of a verse. Verse 3 is like the title of the verse, Or the subject of the verse. You have a Selah where you pause and you reflect on that idea. And then verses 4 through 8 describe what he's talking about. So we see that here. God came from Taman. He's the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. And you would pause and reflect on that. Now what does that mean? That he came from Taman. That's the area of Edom. It's not just the area of Edom. It's also an area outside of Egypt where Israel went. After they'd, been in cap- or after they'd been in slavery or captivity in Egypt. This is where God gave them the law. Mount Paran is another term for Mount Sinai. It's where God started to form his people. There in the wilderness, Israel was given the law. They were given things that showed them the character of God. What Habakkuk is saying is that God started to reveal himself even more when Israel was in the wilderness So you would listen to that. If you were a Jew, you would remember that. Yes, we know that's true from history. And you'd pause and reflect on that. What does that tell us about the character of God? Well, he's a personal God. He reveals himself to us. He's not just some kind of deity up in the sky who starts things and leaves them to destruction. By the way, there's a lot of people who believe that. You'll meet a lot of people who aren't atheists, who may not even be agnostics, but they think God just started everything. He created the world somehow, but he's just left it to its own destruction. That's not true. God is a personal God. He reveals himself to us. He gives us his law, showing us how we ought to live. So we see that in verse three, the Selah would have us reflect on that. And then in verses four through eight, we get a further description of God's presence. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His splendor is like his brightness, and it fills the sky. It's everywhere. You can see it all around. The earth is full of his praise. Creation, everything that God has made, worships him, shows us his character. In verse 4, his brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. We almost get the image of a lightning storm. I don't know about you, when I was a kid, I was always afraid of storms. Now I kind of think they're cool, but I still don't want to drive in the middle of one. There was one night where my dog and I, Mac, he was just a puppy. He used to wake me up at like 12 at night, 1 in the morning, and have to go outside to the bathroom every night. And... There was one night, it was storming, and I really didn't want to take him out, but I knew he wasn't going to leave me alone till he went, so it was when I was in an apartment, I was on the top floor, we went all the way down the stairs, he was on the leash, we opened the door, and he went outside, and all of a sudden, a huge flash of lightning was just all around us, and we both looked at each other, and he literally jumped into my arms, and we ran inside, and we said, we're done, we're not going back outside for the rest of the night. It was lightning that literally filled everything around me. It was almost like I could reach out and grab it. When I was a camp counselor, we had a really bad storm go through. Those cabins didn't have air. They barely had power. And they were really isolated from the rest of the campground. You had no cell reception out there. You only had like a walkie-talkie that you could communicate with other people with. So this storm had been going on for a while, and the kids were asking me if everything was going to be okay. And I said, oh, I'm sure it's going to be fine. I'll just walk outside and check the storm. Right when I did, boom, huge clap of thunder, lightning just everywhere. And I mean, the cabin was literally shaking. And I said, I'm sure it's going to be fine. We just need to go back to bed. And eventually the storm did pass. This is what the brightness and the glory of God is like. It surrounds us. It's everywhere. It's like a lightning show that we see in the heaven. It says, Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood up and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. In verse 5, we see that as God comes to the earth. It's almost like an arrival. People call it a theophany, God appearing or arriving on earth. As he does this, you see flashes of lightning. You also see plague and pestilence. The enemies of God are destroyed. In verse 6, it says, he stood and measured the earth. How big is God? How powerful is he? Well, when he stands up, he can measure the earth. That's pretty powerful. That's pretty large. Whenever I go to this, it reminds me of when I go to the store and all these shorter ladies ask me to reach something on the top shelf. And I spend half my time in Walmart just grabbing things for people because none of them can reach It, it says, he looked and shook the nations. As God moves his head, the whole earth, the whole nations shake. Sometimes Alicia says that I'm like a bull in a china shop. If I move around, I don't think about the things that I'm knocking over or pushing away. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. Sometimes we think those mountains or those structures have been here forever, but they are not as old as God. In comparison to his eternal nature, they're young. In verse 7, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. We're given a specific event where we see God working. If you remember the story of Gideon and Judges, the nation of Midian actually was not enemies of Israel for their entire history. Moses married a Midianite. But eventually God used them to afflict Israel In Judges chapter 6, Israel was sinful against God, they went into captivity, and then eventually God saved them using Gideon. And here we get a picture of how God works in that situation. Verse 8, was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord, was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? It reminds us of the exodus. God saving his people, God delivering them from trouble. And in all this, we see the glorious presence of God. Our God is not idle. He does not just sit back and let things happen, but he is presence. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere at all times. Presence is a powerful idea. baby can feel their mother's presence. Imagine what would happen if Schaefer and Caitlin let you hold Sandy and then went into the other room to do something. Maybe Sandy would be okay for a little bit, but if you were holding her for too long and she realized that Schaefer and Caitlin weren't there, she might start fussing or crying or getting upset. What happens when Caitlin comes back? She sees her mother's presence, and there's something about that that just makes everything okay. We have a present God. One of the beautiful things about this psalm that Habakkuk writes is that it answers the questions from chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 12, Habakkuk says, Are you not from everlasting? And in Habakkuk 3.6, he says, The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. The questions asked in chapter 1 and it's answered with a resounding yes in chapter 3. In chapter 1, he says, Why do you look idly at evil? Why do you let this evil and affliction go on? And in chapter 3, verse 7, he says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. We do not serve an idle God, but we serve a very present and glorious and powerful God, and that should be an encouragement. To us. So, friends, when life spins out of control, we can remember that God is there. When it feels like all of our friends have forsaken us and no one is with us in this trial, we can remember God's presence. After this verse, they would repeat the chorus again. O Lord, I have heard the report of you. and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of your years, revive it. In the midst of your years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. I see the presence of God. I look at my situation and I hear the word of God, and I'm praying for him to work. We see a second stanza in verses 9 through 12. We want to look at God's powerful works. God's powerful works. Look at verse 9. You strip the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. Gives you the idea of an archer getting his bows out, or getting his arrows out, pulling his bow out, getting ready to shoot something. Now, archery is a lot harder than it looks. When I lived in Virginia, I had some friends that were into hunting and different shooting activities, and so one of them asked me if I wanted to pull back his bow, and I thought, sure. And he said, well, it's kind of weighted heavy, so you want to be careful as you're pulling it back. And I thought, well, I'm a big guy, I'm sure I can pull it back. And I couldn't even get the string all the way back. It's like i never used those muscles before. And it was almost dangerous for me to try to pull it all the way back because I was going to misfire the arrow. We see God getting ready to act. This is a military idea that we see of our great God. And we're going to look at his powerful works. After this first phrase, it says, Selah, it would give us the opportunity to reflect on God in his character. But let's look at the rest of verse 9 into verse 12. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. We see nature reacting to the character of God. God created the world. It says, You split the earth with rivers. When God created the world, he created the land and the sea and the rivers. All of the creation that we see comes from God. The mountains saw you and they writhe. They are distressed. All these terms show us how nature fears at the character and the works of God. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. We see waters almost foaming going out of control. It's almost like a flood. It's hands lifted on high. Then we get again a specific example of the works of God in verse 11. The sun and moon stood still in their place. At the light of your arrows, they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. Where do we remember a story in the Bible of the sun and moon standing still? Well, it's in the book of Joshua, Joshua chapter 10. In Joshua chapter 10, in fact, you can turn there if you'd like. We see Joshua conquering the land of Canaan. God was giving Israel the promised land. They'd been wanting wanting to enter this land for 40 years. But for 40 years, they waited because the last generation that complained needed to die out. So at this point in Joshua, we see some kings of Canaan banding together because they're worried about Joshua and the nation of Israel taking the land. We see in verse 1, all these kings, there's five Canaanite kings that were banding together to try to destroy Israel, to try to stop this invasion, And they encamp against Israel. And as you read through the chapter, if you look at verse 7, it says, And Joshua went up from Gilgal, and all the people of war with him, and the mighty man of valor. In verse 8, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came up on them suddenly, having marched all night from Gilgal, and the Lord threw them into panic before Israel who struck them with a great blow and struck them as far as Achaia and Makeda. And they flew before Israel and were going down the ascent of Beth Haran when the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the son of Israel killed with the sword. So we see this military victory that Joshua has here, where God says, "I've given them into your hands, you don't need to fear them, I've given you the victory." So Joshua goes, they pursue them. We see later on in verse 11, in verse 12, that God causes the sun and moon to stand still. There's this long day here where God allows them to finish this battle. And not only does He cause time to stand still, but even when they're running away, what does God do? He throws hailstones at them. He kills all these people. It says there are more people killed with hailstones than who were killed by the children of Israel. God intervenes for his people. And this is just one of his many powerful works. In verse 12 You marched through the earth in fury, you threshed the nations in anger. It again shows. God going to war, going to battle for his people. You thresh the nations in anger. Threshing back then was a group of oxen stomping on different wheat, trying to purify it. And in the same way, God threshed the nations, disposing of their wickedness, saving his people. And here we see the great work of God. God working for his people. And it reminds us again of the questions of chapter 1. In chapter 1, verse 2, Habakkuk says, How long will I cry for help and you will not hear? And in, verse, in chapter 3, verse 12, it says, You marched through the nations in fury. You threshed the earth in anger. And what we're reminded of is that when we're discouraged, waiting for God to work, When we're saying, how long will we cry out for help and you will not hear, God has a plan. God is powerful. He is working. He answers prayer. After this stanza, we would again see the chorus of verse 2, reminding us of the work of God, praying for God to work through his people. And we see the last verse in verses 13 through 15. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. We see here God's wonderful salvation. God's wonderful salvation. God is not only a present God who's glorious. He's not only a powerful God who works, but God saves and even in the Old Testament we see God's wonderful salvation now you think about it these people had not experienced the cross yet Christ did not come when Habakkuk wrote this he'd not come through all of the Old Testament to die on the cross for sins so how would they know that God is a saving God well oftentimes in the Old Testament they would think back to their time In Egypt, where God saved them from captivity, when he saved them from the Egyptians, when Moses calls out to God and he says, Who will I tell them sent me? Remember, he's afraid to go and tell Israel who he was. God says, You tell them that Yahweh sent you. I am who I am. That God is a self existing God, and that he saves. His people. And through those events, we see God saving his people through plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, protecting his people in the wilderness. And you ask yourself, why did God save Israel? Well, it's because he said he would. We see here God's wonderful salvation. He went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. That word there is actually the same word used for the Messiah, but it can also refer to not just a chosen person, but a chosen people of God in Israel. That's not the only part of the verse. It also says, you crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. God not only saves his people, he judges the wicked as well. The Salah would have us Reflect on that and remember that God is a saving God. In verse 14, you pierced him with his own arrows, the head of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. We see God fighting for his people, devouring the enemies of Israel, those who had ill intentions to try to destroy them. In verse 5, you trampled the sea. With your horses, the surging of your mighty waters. It again calls us back to the Exodus when God saves his people, when God parts the Red Sea. Now, many people have talked about the Red Sea and they've said, well, we don't really know where it is. Some people think, well, maybe God didn't part it, but it was only a sea that had like a foot of water and they could just walk through it. Well, if that's true, then the Egyptians drowned in one foot of water. And that's a miracle in and of itself. Whatever the case may be, I think it was an actual sea that God parted. God saves his people. He redeems them. And this is true not only in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament as well. We see questions answered again from chapter 1. In chapter 1 verse 2 it says, How long will I cry to you violence and you will not save? And the answer, you went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed. In chapter 1, we see, For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. What does God do to the wicked? It says, You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. God answers all of our questions with his word. And by the way, all these truths from the character of God that Habakkuk cites, they were always true. He could have always gone back to scripture and saw this character of God. But it's hard to see the character of God in suffering. It's hard to know these things are true about God when we're in the middle of affliction. So sometimes we need to be reminded of who God is. So we can remember from this verse, when we're discouraged by the trials of life, we can remember the salvation that we have from God. There's some days when just everything is going wrong. You feel like you've done nothing right, like nothing is going right in your life. And all you have to hold on to is this, that God saved you, that he sent his son to die for you. And that one day you'll spend eternity with him. And that, friends, is more than anything else that the world can offer. We can remember God who saved us. If God saved Israel from Egypt, think about how much he saved us through his son, Jesus Christ. So all of these characteristics of God, his presence, his working, his salvation, they should cause us to sing. And you might say, well, I don't sing very well. Well, you don't have to actually sing a solo in church, but we should sing, we should worship God for what he's done. Now, there's a lot of discussions about singing in church on worship styles and on worship types here in our church, because I'm the only one that leads singing. We pretty much just have one style that we can go. And if you don't like the guitar, it's probably not going to be the church for you. But when we focus on worship, we don't just want to focus on the performance, the acoustics, the stage. We want to focus on the lyrics, on what is being sung. What does good music do? Good music should remind us of the presence of God. Now, we don't have to ask God to come to our worship service. He's already here. He's already here among us. He lives in each one of us who are believers. But good music should remind us of God's presence. Good music should describe to us what God has done, his works, showing us his character. Good music should emphasize the salvation of God. Whenever I'm looking for songs, either hymns or new songs, one of the questions I ask is, do we sing the gospel When we sing that song, does it tell us of our sinful condition of Christ coming to earth in human flesh, dying on the cross for sin, rising again from the grave? Good music should emphasize the salvation of God and what he's done in our lives. And then good music should be all for the glory of God. You won't see me doing any guitar solos or riffs, mainly because I don't know how to do them with the guitar, but also because it's not about the person singing. It's not about the entertainment, but it is about believers in Jesus Christ singing for the glory of God. So if you're here this morning and you're saying, I don't really sing very well, that's okay. The Bible says make a joyful noise. It doesn't say that that noise has to sound good. But you can sing to the Lord, remembering what he has done for us. We should sing remembering God's character. There is something about music that is unique. That in music, we can sing things that we know are true, but they can mean something else to us. They can remind us of who God is and his character. Lastly, we want to rest. We've talked about praying. We've talked about singing. We finally want to rest, trusting the promises of God. We get to verse 16, and really we could go into verses 17 through 19, but like I said, I want to save those for next week. Habakkuk, in response to all this, he says, I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. This would almost be like the bridge, the part of the song that causes us to reflect. And here, Habakkuk reflects on his own condition. He's not writing this worship song. He's not singing to the Lord in a physical condition where it seems like everything's okay. He says, I hear in my body trembles, I'm physically shaking. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. What is Habakkuk describing here? I think he's describing seeing the Babylonian nation coming. You see all these things are true about God in chapter three that God saves, that he works, that he's present, but that does not negate the fact That the Babylonians were coming. They were going to destroy Israel. And Habakkuk didn't know if he was going to survive. There were still real life physical situations happening in his life. So he says, look, I'm not physically okay. I'm shaking. I'm afraid. My bones feel like they're rotten. And yet, I will wait for the day... Of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. What does that last phrase mean? Habakkuk knows what's going to happen to Judah, but he also knows what's going to happen to Babylon as well. And he trusts in the character of God that even though this doesn't make sense now and his present circumstances aren't what he wants them to be, that God keeps his word. And that God will do what he says he's going to do. Babylon was proud. We read last week about the destruction that will happen to them. What Habakkuk is saying here is that I believe those things are going to happen. I'm going to trust in the promises of God. And sometimes during suffering, that's all we can focus on, is trusting in God's promises. What has God promised us in his word Sometimes when we're upset, when we're suffering and we're crying and weeping, we can trust that God says he's going to wipe away all tears when we're in heaven with him. We can trust that there will be a day where he makes everything right. Habakkuk knows his situation, but he decides to trust and rest in the Lord. It's okay to have questions. It's okay to go to God with concerns. But we should always come back to the idea of rest and waiting on God to work. So as we close this morning, we want to ask ourselves three final questions as we reflect on what we've learned in God's word. Number one, do you worship the Lord in suffering? It's okay to bring our complaints to him, but you take time in suffering saying that I'm going to worship God. Do you worship the Lord in suffering? There are great hymns that we can sing in our hymnals, great songs that have been written to help those who are suffering. They always lead us to trust. Secondly, do you pray, trusting that God will work? So many times we pray almost like it's a genie in the bottle, wishing that something would happen, but not really believing that it's going to happen. Let me challenge us with this. Do we pray not just for physical circumstances, which aren't bad to pray about, but do we pray for spiritual realities that are also true? How much of our prayer time, either private or with others, do we just focus on the physical things that are happening to us and we don't think about spiritually what is God doing in our lives? How is God changing us? Pray trusting that God will work. There's sometimes in suffering where we have to pray, God, change my attitude about this because I don't like what I'm going through and I know I'm not responding to it right. And you may know that that's true in your heart, but pray and ask God to help you change and grow. God wants to grow us and change us through suffering through the things he's allowed to happen in our lives finally do you rest in the promises of God if God has said it's true it is going to happen there is no doubt about it do you rest in God's promises we can pray we can cry out to God but there comes a moment where we just have to say I'm going to trust that God is going to do what he said he's going to do so we consider all of these things, as we pray, as we sing, as we rest, we can begin to worship God in the suffering. And may our worship to God be an example to the world around us of something that's unique and beautiful as believers in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Habakkuk. We ask that you would help us to have the attitude of the prophet Habakkuk who did not lie, who didn't tell us things that weren't true, but he genuinely saw your character through the suffering that was happening in his life. Help us to be like him. Help us to see how you're working, Lord. Help us to understand your character better as believers in Jesus Christ. Help us to pray to you when things go wrong. Help us to worship you and help us to rest in your promises. And now as we consider communion, we pray that we would be thankful for what your son has done for us. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.